Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show. Hope you're keeping warm out there if you're on the East Coast. And if you're not and you're in the sun, then lucky you. We are very jealous. Um, We have a great show for you today. We've got Barry Rafferty with us who is the EVP, Head of Comms and Brand Management at Wells Fargo. Barry, we've had you on the show before, but I think that was when you were at Ketchum. So welcome to the PR Week. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Yeah, great to chat to you. Looking forward to the conversation. We've got Frank Washcook here, as always, our executive editor. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Plenty of events to keep you busy and the team this week. Sure are. Yeah, virtual, but actual events. Virtual, but still super effective. So, yeah, we will uh, get Frank's take on some of the big stories of this uh, week. But, Barry, let's – well, yeah, we're going to start on the news front. We'll talk about Andy Polanski. He's retiring after 38 years. Difficult to believe that he's been around for 38 years. He looks so young. But anyway, uh, we'll chat about Andy. The Edelman Trust Barometer was released this week, and uh, Larry Fink's CEO letter, which is always around the same time, that came out. We'll talk about GM, which has revamped its comms team, and uh, so has has IBM a little bit. Uh, Jonathan Abishek has taken over marketing responsibilities. We'll chat about that. Talk about Unilever. They've been in the news for uh, trying to make some moves, trying to buy GSK and trying to get more into healthcare. So we'll talk about that. And Microsoft looking to acquire Activision in the biggest ever video game deal. So loads of big business stories with um, communications and purposeful business implications. But Barry, let's talk to you first. You've been uh, on the client side at Wells Fargo for 15 months now, and then you took over increased responsibility for brand and then the in-house agency. So obviously settling in well. Tell us how it's been going. And uh, it's most of it, I guess, is well, probably all of it has been in, um, in lockdown, really. Yeah, it is definitely crazy, Steve, starting a role in lockdown. In fact, I did not meet um, our CEO or head of public affairs until eight months in in person. So wow. it's been a unique experience for sure. But Um, A great experience overall. You know, a lot of people said to me, you know, it's a big shift being on agency most of your career. But I have to say it's probably been one of the more intellectually stimulating roles I've had um, in a way that I've really been able to take all the things I learned in my agency career and put it to bear on one brand and certainly an iconic institution that is rebuilding its reputation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if this is just dumb luck or you've made such an impact, but since you arrived, the, it, Wells Fargo seems to have really stabilized because it, it had had some rocky years, um, but there's a lot less sort of negative noise around the bank and you seem to be... Well, um, I would say, you know, Charlie Scharf joined as CEO and has made tremendous changes in the leadership team. In fact, his operating committee and 50% of our management team is in new roles in the past year. And I think you're seeing us not only improve our risk and control infrastructure, but also simultaneously really changing our products and services to be more customer centric. And so being a communications and brand team during this time has really allowed us to make sure we're 
optimizing the news and the stories and making sure that people really know about the changes that are being made internally. Yeah. Um, do you feel that new sense of um, optimism? Because it, it, it can be dispiriting for for employees, can't it, when they see their brand in the news, not necessarily in the most positive light. And obviously, in the last two years, employee engagement and internal has been super important generally for every organization because because of what we were talking about, because a lot of people are working remotely, not everyone. And, you know, don't forget a lot of uh, bank workers have to go to go into the coalface every day and be uh, forward facing on the high street. But uh, do you feel a new sense of optimism amongst the whole organization and especially internally? Yeah, we do feel a big shift. I mean, particularly if you think about our communications team here, right? They were fighting the fight on the back foot of issues in crisis for many years, and it was pretty exhausting. So I think it's been exciting for them to really now be more on the front foot and have a lot more positive news. You know, we've also seen our impact on some of the societal issues. You know, we took 420 million nearly of our PPP money and put it back into supporting small businesses. So it's not even only about seeing the changes within the company and the products and services that we're shifting but also the societal impact we're having, the climate commitments we're making. So I think people are feeling very good about where the company's going, the long-term strategy that's been put in place, and the progress on the risk and control areas to make sure we have the right foundational infrastructure to continue to move forward in the right way. But it's not a straight path, you know, when, when you're moving a big organization like this with 250,000 people um, you know, as Charlie says, it's not a straight line, but we're seeing the progress and we're definitely feeling it. And we saw it last week in kind of our earnings announcement as well and the positive headlines we got. Yeah, for sure. And what sort of checks and balances have you? You're absolutely right. There's no room for complacency. We've all seen that. You can uh, quickly be back in the mire again. So what sort of checks and balances have you put in from a sort of communications and reputation point of view to make sure that uh, everything's in order and all the messaging is going out there on on brand and is, is you know, you're taking the right uh, precautions? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, first of all, as you and I were talking about before, being part of a financial institution, there is a lot of um, risk and compliance and processes. And what we've done to make sure is our processes are consistent particularly across brand and communications as we've merged these groups together. We also have really looked at our analytics and we're looking at trust and favorability um, on a much more kind of integrated enterprise-wide approach. So we brought together a lot of those groups to make sure we're looking at things. We're using um, social listening in real time every day. Um, to make sure our messages are getting out there and being heard in the way we want. And if we need to make changes, we can make shifts um, in real time. And what I would say is we also, I think, have really worked this past year um, on issues preparedness and incident communications to make sure that we're looking around corners at what could happen and being more prepared than we may have been in the past. Yeah, now, I think the last time I saw you in person was two years ago, just before the pandemic, and we were in Davos at the World Economic Forum, where you were still at Ketchum, and that was a, sort of an annual meetup that um, we, we would see each other there. What's your take on, first of all, would you have been there now if you were at Wells Fargo? Is that something you see value in from a Wells Fargo point of view? And secondly, 
what's your take on live events now? You know, do you feel that we'll all be going back to them or has it been a case of, well, we, we, you know, life has gone on. We've, we've, we've survived without things like Davos and Cannes, et cetera. And maybe we don't, don't need to do them anymore. What's, what, what are you thinking? Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I, A, I can't believe we haven't seen each other for two years because yeah, it is yeah. amazing <laughs> virtually yeah. how you keep the relationships going, but I sure miss that in person. And I think that a lot of people do. I think it's going to be back to a combination of live events but also more flexibility, right? And more things. We joked earlier that, you know, you required people to be in studio. And I don't know that that will ever happen again because you can get guests from all over the world now and work virtually. So I think we're going to be in a new world that is a combination of both. You know, we're planning the Wells Fargo Golf Championship right now in May. And, you know, people love, and last year that was kind of a little bit of our coming out party where people got together for the first time and, got to experience that as an outdoor event um, at the time. So I'm looking forward to getting back to things like Davos, where you have those intellectual conversations in person and, you know, can be traveling the world a little bit again and experiencing different cultures. But I don't think it'll go back to how I was on a plane and probably you as often as we were before. So I'm looking forward to this kind of new hybrid approach. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we talk about Andy Polanski. He he said, you know, he'd he'd really enjoyed being able to have dinner with his family like every every evening, you know, for the first time in his career almost that he'd spent his life on a plane. So we'll chat a bit more about that. But yeah, it's we had uh, PR Week had two or three smaller in person events before the holidays, and everyone the the atmosphere was fantastic. You know, the Hall of Fame the um, 40 Under 40 and the Purpose Awards, people really did enjoy getting together again. And obviously we are having our big, the Oscars of the PR industry on March 16th in New York. The plan is to have that in person. And I think that will be a great reunion and a great chance to get the industry back together. I, I agree with you that people still, re- they do really miss that. But you're right, yeah. We wouldn't let people on this podcast unless they came to the studio, which seems crazy now because we've been doing it remotely for two years in fact we'll probably never go back to do the <laughs> person thing why would you um but uh, so so yeah good points what about the overall difference between being on the client side uh, versus your long career at, in on the agency side at Ketchum you know I guess you've got one client now haven't you which is Wells Fargo uh, how big of a culture change has that been and how how much of a how much have you enjoyed it you know as a, as, as a new challenge and an opportunity to step into something different Well, I do think, you know, my agency experience really allowed me to make the transition at this level. And I think a couple things. One is, interestingly, we really have five lines of business. So I have multiple clients, whether you're a consumer bank or wealth management or commercial or, you know, there's definitely different areas of the bank with different audiences and customers and clients. So we're dealing with that in addition to the enterprise brand. But I also think so many of the things I learned organizationally about how to build an agency, how to package and win business, right? I've been able to apply here as I came in to help really modernize our function. Um, I took a lot of the things that we did really well on the agency side, like built centers of excellence, created really integrated teams now across communications and marketing and brand and sponsorships. But we have, you know, new areas like editorial content and marketing influencer specialists and things. So a lot of that I was able to take and apply inside a corporation. 
We also here have an in-house agency um, that does a lot of the advertising and marketing for the company. And we work with outside agencies on fully agile and integrated teams. So, so many of my experiences seeing some of the best you know, clients and how they structured their departments, how they worked with their agencies, how they focused on brand and reputation, I can now apply here. So that's been exciting and intellectually stimulating and allowed me to also build a great diverse team of talent. We're continuing to hire. Um, it's, you know, been kind of, we're evolving and growing. And the great news is with our in-house agency and others, the demand from our lines of business, because we're doing such great work is there that we're growing some of those teams this year. So that's exciting as well. Tell us a bit more about the in-house agency. Has that been a long-standing thing? And does that handle some of the more production-related stuff or the programmatic stuff? And um, which bits do you anticipate coming into that? And which bits will you keep you know, with third-party um, advisors, partners? Yeah, so in our marketing team, we did have an in-house agency. Um, and they built it originally um, in San Francisco, but now we have really people not only around the U.S., but in the Philippines and India. So it really allows us 24-7 support. And they have creative directors. They're doing, you know, strategy. And as you say, too, some of the walk and tackle things that we might not want to go outside and can do more cost effectively in-house. So it is a nice combination. But I'm also seeing them work with our agency partners um, collaboratively, they understand the brand so well. They understand, you know, how and we can work with digital signage and ATMs and banner ads and our website. And so that combination of in-house and outside thinking, I think, has really helped us be effective and efficient and keep the costs in the right place with that combination. Yeah, interesting stuff. And obviously somewhere you can really add value with your agency experience. So, yeah, great stuff. We look forward to getting your input on the stories. Um, but good to chat, Barry, and glad things are going well. Um, Frank, let's talk about the big stories of the week. Now, What this is a big story in our sector, isn't it? Andy Polanski, well known to us, well known to the sector. He's retiring after 38 years in the business, all at the same organization. Basically, it's gone through some changes, but... Um, uh, a big, big milestone in the industry, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think big shoes to fill. Um, so I, I think it's going to be interesting to see too who, who really, and this is industry wide, kind of steps up into a leadership role that is, uh, you know, we, we've talked about his his history and mentorship and how many people he mentored across the industry. Uh, but who steps into that role and who's really the next person that a lot of agency leaders sort of look to as? Um, somebody who helped them out along the way. Yeah, Barry, I, I, when we were covering this, and obviously not known Andy a long time, I can't, you can't find anyone to say a bad word about him. He, he really is one of the, those most respected figures in the PR sector, isn't he? He is. You know, I had the pleasure of working with him on the PR council directly. Um, but I'll tell you, anywhere you went in the world, if Andy saw you, he had a nice thing to say. He was complimentary. didn't matter if you were a competitor or not. Um, and built that warmth and rapport with so many people in the industry that, you know, we all should leave that kind of legacy and footprint. It's amazing. Yeah. And as I was saying earlier, I think he's, I don't think it was um, the pandemic that's made him make this decision. If anything, it's delayed it. I think uh, he was looking at this decision already, but he did say, you know, having that chance to his two sons with his wife, Maria, 
they were living with um, them, back with them for a while during the pandemic. So they, the whole family was having dinner together. And he really did love that opportunity because he literally had been on a plane for, you know, the last 20, 20 or probably more years. And I guess that does make you reassess priorities and just make you think, well, maybe I should be spending a bit more time on my boat or playing uh, pickleball, as I think he said. (laughs) (laughs) But it will be interesting. I don't think he's necessarily going to do anything in the PR space, certainly not immediately, but he he is going to be doing non-profits and getting involved on boards and doing other stuff. But I'm sure he's going to have a bit of time off first. Um, I see a lot of people now talking about, you know, portfolio careers is the term. I don't know if you've heard mm, that, Steve, but, you know, people that still want to continue to add value and do things, but maybe don't want to work the same pace that, you know, this time being at home and a little more self-care and family time and balance um, has made people start to reevaluate what that next phase is. So I'm happy for him. And I Hope he, I'm sure he will um, find a way to contribute to a lot of different things and add value. Absolutely. And Frank, if you look at it, um, if you look at, I think when we first started covering Weber Shandwick, the, the, the three people at the top would have been Harris Diamond, Andy and um, Jack Leslie. And the CEO was Michael Roth. And um, they've all retired in the last 18 months, couple of years, haven't they? So it's a real sort of end of an era and a changing of the guard at um, IPG and Weber Shandwick. It is, yeah. And, I, you know, one thing that's always been fascinating for me is I think if you've covered uh, IPG and you've covered their earnings and you really look back to the pre-Michael Roth years, um, you know, that that holding company was a bit of a basket case financially before Roth arrived. Um, and so it's it really a lot of strides made holding company wide over those years, too. Yeah. And um, I think Andy would say that, you know, his biggest partnership over that time has been with Gail Hyman, and that, who is now the CEO of Weber Shandwick. So the transition to uh, Gail's leadership has uh, is now entrenched and, and has happened. So that that was a great partnership. And we'll definitely be having Andy on the show before he leaves in, is it in June, Frank, or is it in March? I can't, I can't remember, actually. Um, uh, it's it, it's in June. Right. Uh, but so what do you think? Do you think they'll replace Andy's role on Dextra? Because he'd, he'd um, moved upstairs, if you like, to that sort of group role, used to be known as Constituency Management Group, and he wisely rebranded it to uh, Dextra, overlooking PR, but also some of the, uh, IPG's other firms. Do you think they'll replace that, or do you think they really built that role for Andy, and that actually they don't necessarily need someone to have that uh, overarching role? I would be surprised if they didn't replace him there, just because of how much work they've done over the past year rebranding Dextra and really kind of polishing up the offerings and how the agencies can work together. Yeah, and Barry, when you were at Omnicom, you know, the, there was a Omnicom PR group, which was like the umbrella over the PR firms. What is it that you would look to from an umbrella organization within a holding company like that to really add value? Because if you're not careful, it becomes a bit of a sort of non-job, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting for me is a little bit of the OPRG kind of, but really looking to the holding companies to create truly integrated teams across disciplines and whether that's advertising, digital, um, paid media, public relations, right, is that's to us that really, you know, what we're looking for from the holding company is deliver that more seamlessly and, you know, kind of that integration cost effectively. So I think that that's where the client directors, if you will, global client directors 
are going to come into play is can they pull from all those different organizations and does that make it simpler for them to get the right resources they need in real time? Yeah, for sure. All right. So we mentioned Davos earlier, and normally Edelman would release their trust barometer at Davos. And obviously, Davos is virtual this year, but they still released it. Um, it's the annual report. Frank, tell us what the highlights were this year and um, how it sort of positions itself now that Edelman is kind of making the trust barometer more of a year round thing rather than just a once a year thing. Well, I'm struggling to find um, there, there's a, a small silver lining in here uh, in that uh, companies, corporations have have really surged to the top of the most trusted source of information for people. Now that's that's good for companies and it's good for in-house you know content creation and communications departments. But that also means that trust is declined across all kinds of institutions, whether that's media, government, business, um, and all kinds of areas. So um, it, there's also an interesting stat in here about how the trust in corporations is hyper local. And that means 77% of respondents trust their own employer rather than business uh, in general, uh, with 65% saying communication from their own employer uh, rather than other sources is most trusted. So 81% um, also believe that CEOs should be personally visible when discussing public policy with external stakeholders or the work their company is doing to benefit society, which, uh, which I also agree with. But that's, that's also a tough read for anybody in any other sector, you know, whether it's nonprofit or government or, or the media, especially. So interesting media, about yeah. this too. Yeah. So um, another interesting aspect of this is if you check out the non-marketing and non-business uh, trade area and you, you go to the general wire services and you look at the way that the trust barometer was covered there, a headline from Reuters uh, is that autocracies, Non-democratic countries are actually outdoing democracies now in terms of public trust uh, based on the report, which is really frightening when you read it that way, too. It really is. And by that, they mean countries like China and Russia, where there isn't a, a democracy, yeah, there isn't a democratic government. Right, right, correct. And having increased um, power across the world. That, that is incredibly worrying. What? Barry, you, you, you'll have, Edelman's one of your agencies now. You will have competed with them in the past, but I'm sure being aware of the trust barometer, it's probably one of the, one of the most well-known and well-established pieces of IP in the industry. How does, does that help you inform your role as a, a business leader? And, and what was your taking on this year's uh, barometer findings? Yeah, I mean, I've always been in awe of the marketing Edelman does around that, right? It really has become an iconic piece of um, research that everyone looks to. And I think like you, you know, looking at the rise of corporations is a plus if you're in a corporation, but with trust going down across the board, it makes it harder, I think, for all of us, right? When the news media is not trusted and social media declined and nonprofits declined. And then, as you said, this concept of, you know, the polarization in Western society that's, I think, creating some of this you know, decline in the democracy. So to me, it's worrisome overall um, that we're in this type of position where, you know, trust overall is so low. And I think we all have to work on that credibility. And importantly, in our role as communicators and, you know, working in companies and with a, such a large employee base, you know, we need to make sure that we're consistent, um, that we're authentic, that we're leading them in the right way, um, both in the short term, but also in our long term um, thinking and purpose. So I think that's going to be important. 
it makes our role pivotal for sure. Yeah, Frank, the other thing that usually comes out around this time, and I'm sure it's tied into Davos as well, is Larry Fink's annual CEO letter, Larry Fink being the CEO of BlackRock, the biggest uh, private equity company in the world. And uh, it's become a bit of a, a, an annual must read, hasn't it? Especially if you're thinking about purpose and business, because he's basically said that they're not going to invest in companies that aren't acting re- genuinely purposefully. But that comes with big challenges as, as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more as it pertains to Unilever. But um, his letter this year is a little bit more defensive in in saying that um, taking on uh, taking on purpose issues is not necessarily a sign of wokeness, uh, so to speak, for companies. And it's a wise investment and and what they should be doing. so it, it's interesting. I, I, I think you can, you just with the political tenor out there, you can see why he's on the defensive about this. Yeah, Barry, what do you make of that? Because um, wokeness gets thrown around as an insult, doesn't it? Um, when, you know, an, an alternative view is that it's doing the right thing. But um, I think Larry Fink's point of view is that in the, in the long term, it's actually beneficial for shareholder value to do the right thing. And that really is the essential conundrum that all businesses are dealing with here, isn't it? It's how to keep all stakeholders happy, but also to to not just have shareholders at the center of, of, of your agenda. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, it is a fine balance in keeping all stakeholders happy, right? Because we're all, you know, making commitments for the future and to support the climate and sustainability. But these things are slow changes over time, right? And so I think even Larry Fink is saying, you know, I need to support companies that are leading the transition, not companies that have just shifted already. And so that's been a little controversial, but I think it is the reality that all big companies are dealing with is helping support that transition, help create that longer term stakeholder value and long-term profitability, and they're just not easy fixes. You know, we talk about, even when we're working on our own reputation, it's a lot of singles and doubles. There's not home runs, right? You gotta make progress incrementally every day. And I think it's the same thing on those bigger transformational topics. Yeah, he also talks about the new world of work and the essential relationship between employers and employees. But one one quote caught my eye, Barry, and when he says it's never been more essential for CEOs to have a consistent voice, a clear purpose, a coherent strategy, and a long-term view. Your company's purpose is its north star in this tumultuous environment. And I guess that's a pretty good summation of what communicators are trying to facilitate in progressive organizations. I wrote down the same quote, Steve, and I think it is key. I think that north star and making sure that employees see the roadmap, understand where you're going, and understand their role in helping companies get there. And that's you know, that consistency. And, you know, we often talk about repeatability too, right, is oftentimes it's a little bit like a, you know, politician on a campaign is when you're trying to make those things clear, you have to be consistent in all the forums that you're speaking to employees, both internally and externally today. Yeah, for sure. Frank, let's talk about Unilever. Actually, you're correct. It's a good segue into that uh, story. In the news, because it's uh, tried to acquire GSK, but also because it's generally going to move more toward healthcare 
and uh, get rid of brands that aren't performing. And and uh, much of this is under you know pressure from shareholders. But just to kick us off on this segment, I did see a great quote from someone who said that Hellman's Mayonnaise is one of their brands. And uh, I don't know if it was a shareholder or an analyst who said, well, what is the mission of Hellman's Mayonnaise? And, and this person said, well, sandwiches and salads pretty much sums it up, which kind of, you know, for all the big talk about purpose, et cetera, I, I guess brings it down to its basics. And they're not wrong, are they? So there's a there's a, a segment who just think they should get on and do business, right, and not be bothered by all this other extraneous stuff. Well, I hope nobody is putting mayonnaise on their salad. I think that would that would be a mistake, uh, regardless of of, of what the, what they said in the quote. But um, just some news there too. Um, it looks like, and this this story looks like it's in flux. But um, Unilever might be walking away from that Glaxo consumer healthcare deal, uh, in that it's saying it won't raise its sixty eight billion dollar offer uh, for. Um, the consumer healthcare business of GSK. That's in the journal today. Okay, so um, about the gist of this story, they are a major shareholder of Unilever, who is the fund manager, Terry Smith, uh, essentially said that the company should be focusing more on the fundamentals of the business rather than defining the the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise, right? And I think this is going to be an ongoing thing uh, going forward and that there are a lot of folks who believe that the, the fundamental reason that a business exists is just to, um, you know, provide a return to shareholders. Uh, and that's one point of view on it. And I think that, that the larger and more prevailing point of view, hopefully at this point, uh, is that businesses should act with, with some purpose uh, and be doing some good for society as they're making money. But you, you always think about uh, what Harold Burson said about this uh, when he was interviewed the one time and that to do that, a company has to be making money and has to be making a profit in, in the first place. Um, so, you know, lo- lots going on on this topic, but I, I think, you know, as somebody who covers the space, you do have to hope a little bit that the purpose side of this prevails rather than just, you know, the cold, hard cash argument. Yeah. And I think the argument from the Larry Fink uh, quarter and probably most generally accepted people that we talk to is that actually one leads to another. So if you are genuinely yeah. purposeful and do the right thing, it does feed through to that bottom line and it does eventually produce business benefits. Um, yeah. One, one thing so, I always think about with this, too, is, is um, companies have done this and have acted purposefully for a long time, you know, going back a, a hundred years, if not more. Uh, maybe they just didn't define it as such. I mean, I, you know, look, I'm from Pennsylvania. And if you look at the things that that Hershey, for instance, has done for, for their local community and their local school systems and the, the city that they operate in, I'm not sure they defined that as purpose 100 years ago or less than 100 years ago, but they, they did a lot of charitable work and a lot of good things for, for the local community. It's kind of paternalistic so, capitalism, wasn't it? Um, yeah. The Cadbury family and the Roundtree family, Sir Titus Salt in the UK, the Quaker movement, you know, those sort of things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah, we used to call it community relations, right, instead of yeah. purpose. I mean, yeah. Barry, what do you think about, I mean, the Unilever and GSK is a, would be a massive deal, wouldn't it? And we're going to talk about another massive deal with Microsoft and Activision. But actually, the trend recently with GE and Johnson & Johnson is towards smaller organizations and breakups of these big conglomerates, so, uh, which we thought was the fashion. Is, can we draw any conclusions from this, or is this just a specific situation? 
Well, I think you're seeing Steve both, right? I mean, you're seeing Meta and big companies kind of trying to take a big umbrella. And then you're seeing others that have been in that space a long time and become cumbersome in some ways and trying back to, you know, stockholder value, um, struggling. And so I think they're breaking up. So I think you're going to find the confluence of both. I mean, back to that stakeholder value is what is that long-term vision? And then when you get to a certain point of size and scale and diversity, can you continue to grow or do you have to break it up and rethink it? Yeah, for sure. Frank, we're always interested in how companies structure their communications teams and how chief communications officers are doing that. And we did a story about General Motors under Craig Buchholz, mm -hmm. and he's he's revamped his comms team. Tell us all about it. Yeah, I think this is a this is a really interesting story because General Motors is changing so much as a company. I mean, it just I, I think you just think of the size of the company and then think about this ambitious goal of changing everything over to an electric future uh, in in um, in the next 15 years. That's not a ton of time to be doing all of this. So um, GM's hiring uh, more than 20 people to its comms team in the last year, cross manufacturing product development. And that puts the team in total uh, at slightly over 150. Um, but what's interesting too, is they're reconfiguring their existing teams uh, for new types of business and new types of initiatives. Um, and, and that's across internal comms, innovation, growth, sustainability, diversity. Um, and it's, look, I, I think this is going to be a developing story. I'm sure it's not set in stone. He's going to continue to change this uh, as it goes forward. And, and you know, we'll be checking on, you know, what it means for their agency relationships as well, because this is going to result in, in a lot of different types of new work uh, and new responsibilities for GM as they go through this. Yeah, and Barry Craig, someone you knew well at Proct when he was at Procter and Gamble. Um, how do you put your team together? You know, you had a chance to come in and look at it with fresh eyes, and um, I'm sure you talked to other your peers in you know in the industry. How, how have you gone about that task? Yeah, well, I have huge respect for Craig as a client and a friend. I think he's doing a great job over there. And similarly, I came in house and did the same thing. I mean, we've had to be the balance of proactivity and internal and reactive. Um, we've had to enhance, right, as DE&I has become a big topic for everyone. And I think we look at diversity, equity, and inclusion. We have a built-in large team to support um, both internal and external activities in that area. But we're also, like I'm sure everyone else, looking at integrating that into everything we do. And if we're doing our holiday campaign, we're looking at, is it in Spanish or Mandarin, right? And do we have the right reach? So that takes a more diverse team to build. I think we're also all looking at channel marketing and editorial content and visual storytelling. And so that's creating new roles that didn't exist potentially in-house before to make sure that, you know, we're as modern and focused and personalized and using the data that we have to really target. So, I think these shifts you're going to see in internal organizations as we prepare for not only the future of our business, but the future needs of this industry and what we're doing um, in integrated communications and marketing to be effective. Yeah, indeed. And we'll be following that closely on PR Week. And the other thing that happened this week, Frank, was uh, over at IBM, which is always a bit of a bellwether. And uh, Jonathan Adeshek has kind of taken on marketing responsibility now as the CMO leaves. And that's almost a bit of a throwback to the John Owata days um, when he oversaw marketing and comms and they kind of moved away from that for a few years. Now, do, does that mean they're going back to that or is this more yeah, of a, well, that's, a that's, circumstance? 
That's what it looks like because IBM CMO, Carla Pinero Sublet, uh, she is out of the role in less than a year. Uh, and Jonathan Adeshek, like you mentioned, has been named Chief Communications Officer and SVP of Marketing and Communications. So it looks pretty formal. Um, so, um, it, it, like you said, it's it's a throwback to the the John Iwata days, and I, I think we always uh, enjoy a little bit when the the top communications person gets to oversee uh, marketing as well, and looking Absolutely. to see what he does at IBM. Um, one of those, I, and and I, you mentioned this in your blog, GE, a couple of months ago. Uh, IBM also one of those companies that has just churned out uh, a lot of talent. Uh, you know, whether in the agency world or also on the in-house side. Uh, a lot of alumni, very active there. Yeah, one day we've got to do that family tree project, haven't we, and track where people started out and where they ended up. It'd be a really interesting. I, I remember the rock family trees from the 80s. I fancy doing the PR family trees. But, uh, Barry, you knew IBM really well. It was a client for decades, and you worked with John Iwata when, when marketing and comms was joined together. Then it went away and was split up again. Now it seems like it's going back together. It does look like that. I didn't quite follow that story this week, but um, you know, John was a, a force when he was at IBM um, doing that integrated work and kind of a role model for many of us. You know, when I look back at what I'm doing today, um, you know, he was. We were all inspired because he was really one of the first that took on that hybrid role that came from the communication side. Yeah, he was. Um, interesting times, so we'll see how that progresses. Finally, tell us about this massive video game deal. Frank, almost $70 billion, I think, Microsoft um, looking to acquire Activision. Yeah, it's been priced anywhere between 68 and $75 billion. It is, believe it or not, it is, and this is long and active history, it's the biggest uh, deal that Microsoft has ever made, uh, significantly bigger than even its uh, LinkedIn deal from a couple of years ago. Um, now, so uh, a couple of different angles on this. There's the gaming angle, there's the crisis angle, uh, and there's the the tech angle. Um, but just in terms of gaming synergies, so this pairs up uh, the Activision Blizzard catalog uh, with with these franchises like Call of Duty and World of Warcraft and and Candy Crush uh, with the Xbox system, but also um, with uh, Microsoft's membership system via xbox uh and and it's streaming so there's a synergy there and then you also have um activision blizzard which was recovering uh from this crisis of how it handled uh sexual harassment accusations in the workplace um so that's that's a part of the company that that uh that microsoft is is eating so to speak um another angle of this is that this has been a, a hit to sony uh, whose share price dropped uh, significantly in the hours uh, after the market opened, uh, after this was announced. So um, another happening there. But um, one thing that I think is really uh, interesting about this is just that it, it's another, it's being described widely in the press as another metaverse play. Microsoft is saying it's a, it's a, it's their, you know, kind of establishing their place in the metaverse. But I still think that a lot of companies really have not defined what exactly uh, they think that the metaverse is going to be. Okay. So there's going to be a gaming aspect. There's going to be an interactive aspect, um, you know, uh, meta, the former Facebook obviously has uh, has their own ideas about what it's going to look like, and they're trying to get ahead in a, a sort of space race in their own way. Um, so we're interested to see how this all shapes out. But um, we did talk to uh, Microsoft's longtime communications leader, Frank Shaw, 
And uh, at this point, way too early to be determined how any sort of comms unit structuring is going to shape up. He says Activision Blizzard is going to continue to operate uh, as an independent unit. So um, as all we were watching, all the in-house teams, but uh, nothing, nothing significant doing there so far in terms of the, the comms teams. Yeah, and there may be FTC, you know, monopoly implications yeah. as well down the line, possibly. But it seems like a, a good way for Activision to move move on from that crisis. Um, right. And it seems to be a win-win across the board there. So we'll see how that one plays out. And on Meta versus, well, uh, make sure you check out our deep dives into Twitch, Rec Room, and Zynga, another video game firm which was... Uh, uh, being bought out. So lots of uh, big deals in the video game sector. Barry, it's been great having you on the show. Um, always good to chat. Looking forward to seeing you in person, hopefully at the PR Week Awards. But thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it, Frank and Steve, and I hope to see you both soon. Absolutely. Frank, always a pleasure. Keep, uh, keep yeah, doing thanks. excellent work. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. And everybody, just look out for the uh, launch of the Brand Film Awards. Um, that's coming, that's launching Thursday, so do uh, check that out. Our Women of Distinction, Women to Watch final deadline for submissions to that, it used to be called the Hall of Femme, is the 26th of January. So make sure you've got your final uh, entries ready for that. Our Global Awards, the final date for entries to that is the 29th of January. And then if you're in the healthcare and pharma space, our inaugural healthcare and pharma communications awards, first deadline, 2nd of February, final deadline, the 9th of February. And finally, agencies, uh, our agency business report. We're planning all the content for that. And uh, if you want to be on our rankings table, you need to fill out our form. So if you haven't received that already, please go to, please drop a line to ABR at prweek.com or ping myself or Frank or one of the team and we will get it to you. But that's all we got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.